Welcome back to Success and More Interesting Stuff. Jamie Ferris is a phenomenon. He is a one in a million who appeared out of the suburbs without notice to create and build a global multi-billion dollar travel empire. Let's go to the numbers. He listed his company, Corporate Travel, on the ASX in late 2010, with total transactional revenue of 351 million and a bit over 3 million of profit. He promised a lot in his first year, telling his new investors he would more than double his profits. At the same time, he told investors he would only charge them 10 times earnings to go for the ride on his corporate rocket ship. Nine years later, the company has grown profits by ninefold and the price to earnings multiple has expanded to more than 30 times, a return of more than 3,000%, all on the back of a man who has had enough energy to take his business from the Brisbane home base to a global player. It has not all been flying first class though. In fact, the last two years have been brutal for the company, topped off by the emergence of the COVID-19 pandemic that stopped travel in its tracks. While the share price has adjusted, Jamie has cut costs, made a major acquisition and shored up his balance sheet. All going well, he and the company are ready for the next leg of their journey. I first met Jamie about six weeks before he floated his company in 2010. I've struggled to keep up since. Welcome, Jamie. Thanks for giving your time to have a chat today. Yeah, thanks so much, Matthew. Okay, let's set the scene. It's the early 1980s and you were sitting around the dinner table in the western suburbs of Brisbane. Who's around that table and what is the discussion? Yeah, it's interesting, isn't it, how, how you wonder how your family sets you up. But I remember sitting around a, a, uh, the dinner table, my parents both in small business, and I think even at the age of five, subconsciously, all you used to talk about was business. And I think as you, you know, a young guy, you're a bit of a sponge, and I think that, that certainly rubbed off onto me. So I guess uh, I was always destined, I felt, to, to run my own business of some sort in the future. But I think hearing that over and over and over, it's hard uh, not to be skewed that way. And the parents in the same business or they're doing something different? No, something totally different. So at the time they're in fashion and, and I've always been entrepreneurs doing different things. So uh, again, small business, successful small business uh, who worked hard and all those ethic, you know, all the work ethic and other things like that clearly rubbed off onto me. And what, were they working seven days a week or did you get a chance to sit around with them at dinner most nights? I, I think most nights, but I think in the early days they were, they were hard working, and I think again, you know, I think those it's those those common threads of hey to the family, you know, hard, you know, work ethic, you you know, good work ethic, you'll get things done, be determined, you know, etc. Cetera, etc. Cetera, and those sort of values came through. So I think as a young age, it was brainwashed, <laughs> for want of a better word. <laughs> and, and, and what were they like? Were they upbeat, positive type of people? Because that's exactly what you are. Did that rub off as well? Yeah, I think my father's pretty passionate and, and upbeat, um, and my mother's probably a little bit more measured. But they were they were in business together, so we're a good team. But um, I think clearly those those uh, things rubbed off onto me, um, and uh, yeah, like I felt I always felt I was going to do something. I just wasn't too sure what it might be. Right, and the the conversations were they around what was selling, uh, who customers were, were they doing things right? Was it all that kind of basic stuff? I think it was more. I think it was just more indirect conversation that you'd, you'd you know, you'd listen in and um, and you'd take it all on board. It, it could be anything from issues they were having to how they're going to the new range. And I think it was just business, business, business. And it was more subconscious or more indirect than anything else. And I think you know that that was your environment growing up. I, I guess you uh, you take it in whether you like it or not. And do you have any brothers and sisters? Yeah, I had a younger sister as well. So, um, and what did she end up doing? Um, she ended up doing her own things as well, got into fashion, and now she's married with, with kids and a full-time mum. But, um, again... Uh, so she was entrepreneurial as well. She was early, yeah. <laughs> and then you went off to school, I think, if I'm right, at Brisbane Grammar. Um, you're a good student? Yeah, I was. In fact, I have very positive memories of school. School was some of the best times of my life, actually, From the, the, in terms of the, the relationships you build with friends and, and so forth and how you grow up with those friends, but also... The whole school environment, I, yeah, I have very positive memories of it. So it, uh, it set me up well. And you played any sports? Someone told me you were a halfback and had plenty to say on the field. <laughs> yeah, I've always had plenty to say, actually. Um, yeah, yeah, I mean, I, I, I really uh, got absorbed in the schooling life from sport and scholastic and friends. And I, uh, yeah, I enjoyed school very much, actually. As I said, it was some of the nicest memories of my life, actually. And was it just going back? Was it was there any business talk at school, or was it more 
school kids stuff? I think it's more school kids stuff, but again, again you know, I had some, a couple of inspiring teachers as well in things like economics and so forth that I think uh, when I look back, um, I, I looked up to as mentors uh, and, and valued their, their commentary. But more than that, I, th- I think school, like good schooling sets you up in a number of ways, doesn't it? It, it, it teaches you about deadlines and having to study to, to meet a deadline and performance, but also interacting with, with not just school kids but teachers and so forth. And I think in when I look back and reflect, they're the sort of values I or the, the disciplines I got out of school, I think. So your um, people skills, a lot of it came out of school, you think? I don't know. I, I just think sometimes you're born with it or not, aren't you? I mean, I'm, I'm a bit of a talker. <laughs> um, I'm always glass half full and, and um, you know, uh, just the way I, I guess it's just my chemistry. Yeah, and so what, what were you good at? What were the subjects you excelled in? You mentioned economics. Um, oh, look, I, I did well at school. Um, I, I did pretty well. So, I, you know, I got, I got good grades and, um, and went on to uni to study what I wanted to study. So it all worked out pretty well. And did you have to work hard to get those good grades or were you a bit of a natural? Um, I was a bit of a natural. I didn't study hard at school, actually, but um, I, I did all right. So, uh, yeah, I, I think so. Yeah, I, I was in hindsight. I didn't, I didn't study as, at all as hard as, as, say, my kids are today. But it sounds like you, you enjoyed the subjects you were looking at, so it became a, a bit easy for you. Is that fair enough? I think some of the subjects for sure, yeah. Um, yeah, I, I, like I said, I, I really enjoyed school and the subjects, I think, so um, – but I was I was very lucky. It did come to me naturally, so I didn't have to study too hard. And what what did, what did you land on when you went to uni? What's what what course did you study? Uh, a Bachelor of Commerce at UQ uh, with um, and I focus more in law and and um, and statistics, uh, which was good. I think all those things have stood me well today. It was a great course again, you know, and a rounded course, but such up well for business and and so forth. So um, again, but when I when I look through those days, I was in a real rush to make money. Um, and to get out of uni and make money, I couldn't wait. For whatever reason, I was always in a rush to get ahead. Uh, when I look back, so to me, uh, university was one of the. It was like a, a, a stepping stone I had to pass to get to the real world, um, and I couldn't wait. I think I had, a, I had a degree at the age of twenty, so I, I was straight into the workforce and couldn't wait. So you're at uni for how long? Three, four, five yeah, years? Yeah, three years. Yeah, three years. Right, and you didn't take a break. You went straight into the workforce. No, straight into it. So I, th- I think I did a bit of backpacking over Christmas but um, in between, but straight into the workforce. And why were you so keen? And, and what was why, why did you want to earn your own money? What was the drive? Because it sounds like you come from a pretty you know, stable kind of middle-class background, so it would have been nice at home, wouldn't it? Yeah, I, I think um, – I think my father started to do a little well, and I, to be honest with you, I, I think I always, in hindsight, had a bit of a chip on my shoulder that I wanted to make it on my own. I didn't want it to say that I was helped by my parents and my family. You know, as a young kid, it's funny how you set up, and I think that was my driving force. But also, I think the way I was brought up about work ethic and you know how to get ahead, I, I was, yeah, I, I was really looking forward to getting stuck into it and starting to make money. And when you're at when you're at uni, were you encouraged to do part time jobs? Did you work in the family business? Yeah, uh, I did all of that, all, all of the above. Um, but I do remember, you know, coming out of university. It's interesting because I had a job. My first job I really wanted to do was to be a stockbroker, actually. Um, <laughs> and I finished in '88. And if you remember, October '87 was a bit of a crash. So I had a job as an inter- as a you know one of the graduates, and then that same company late. Or early the following year, my last year of university said, "Look, sorry, we're not taking you on any anymore." So I had to scramble to find a job, and um, uh, and that's that's where I I ended up going more the accounting stream with Arthur Anderson or now EY EY. But uh, it was interesting. That's where I actually my first my first passion was really to be a stockbroker. So it's ironic um, in a listed world, uh, you, you sort of end up at the other side of that. And does that mean you at home or at uni you were talking shares in the share market with people? Yeah, I, I think I've always always liked shares. Um, you know, and I, I, it's funny when I come back to the business here, I used to tell the team when we were a lot smaller. I said, you know, one day we're going to list, and this is why we're going to list. And when we do list, we're going to you're going to you know be in a position to raise funds to uh, expand around the world. And I remember uh, the team at the time thought I was bonkers, but they used to just nod and go, "Yeah, sure, sure, you will." But you know, I, they still laugh about it now because I was very determined in terms of. What we we're trying to achieve, you know, we've, we felt very strongly there was a big gap in corporate travel, uh, and and that gap could be met, and, and we could do that. And I think as we as we sort of developed that process, we you know had to prove ourselves that we could be the point of difference in Brisbane, then Australia, and then 
it was this sort of osmosis really customers said to us look you know we love what you do here if only you're in america or asia or europe we'd use your services and that was the the starting point i guess to give you the confidence to go and do it you know i look back in hindsight and you think it was sort of a bit crazy in hindsight but i guess when you're young you know you're ambitious risk uh you know you've got you've got a, a you know uh an appetite for risk uh and and in this history really so just saying before we before we move on to the working career so at uni were you dreaming of your own business and and growing a business was it already in your mind then that that was going to happen no no not really i, I think at uni i was too busy to be honest, you know, the social life, chasing girls and friends and feeling that I, I, I wanted to be a stockbroker and I, I remember having a job early and I remember staring my friends saying, ah, you know, you losers all have to go through the accounting stream to get a job and, and it, as it turned out, it ended up happening to me and I was very lucky to get a job in the end because I I, um, I, I started very late in terms of the, uh, the interview process and so forth. But really it was more about, I, I don't think it was there, I think I was always destined to do something and I think... You know, it, it's through my first job um, at Arthur Anderson where I had to travel a bit. I saw the gap. Um, you know, it's like anything, I think. You know, it's through experience you see a gap and you think, you know what, I think I can solve that gap. And and that's really how, how corporate travel management started um, on that basis. So it was seeing that, you know, working for a very large global company was very frustrating. Um, and, and I found that, you know, going through call centres wasn't great, technology wasn't good, and there was no real accountability for savings made or lost or and I just remember it very clearly at the time. It, it, I, I remember it hit me like a thunderbolt thinking this is there's a big gap here, there's a big opportunity, and maybe I should give this a go. So at Arthur Anderson, did you see yourself as a bit of a misfit, big organisation, but you obviously had entrepreneurial kind of aspirations? Um, I've I, I learned an immense amount at, at that business, particularly in that, in that era, it was known for really fast-tracking people. You worked a lot harder than the other ones, but you could fast-track quickly, and I learned an immense amount of knowledge uh, through that company. Uh, but at the same time, I also felt, yeah, being being a, a partner at, at one of those firms probably wasn't my wasn't the right fit for me. Um, uh, to yeah, to be to be frank, what do they have you doing at Arthur Anderson? Well, I, I went everything. I, I started off in auditing, and then I went into business consulting, and 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 all those experiences are very good uh, in terms of seeing a business, you know, in its totality. Uh, particularly the consulting side of things, where I was lucky enough to see businesses. You know, you, you get to see what doesn't work in a business as well. Um, and then the other framing of that was being a big company, you know, being a people-focused company, being a professional services provider, which uh, which Arthur Anderson is, just seeing uh, HR motivation. You know, I, I formed some good views, both good and bad, about about what sort of culture um, is the right culture and a, and a winning culture um, and how to motivate and, uh, and attract and retain people and, and bring people along for a ride. So I, I really learned a lot. I guess all my life I've been a sponge. Um, and and I, I must say, my years there, I, I learned a lot. That it, it's really helped me today. And you said that you learned not what to do. What were some of those things that you steered away from? I just think sometimes in how how uh, they acknowledge uh, people, you know, big companies and so forth, and um, to just to be more human sometimes, and then processing data in terms of just talking to people about how they're going and so forth. Little just little things, but there's many positives too. Um, but like anything, I think you know your experience in life helps you frame what you think is is the right culture. And and, and I say this, you know, culture is a it's an often used word. It's it's a it's an intangible, but you know it, it often is the difference between good companies and great companies. If you can get a team of people that are that are all chiming in together on the same pathway and they have a winning culture uh, and want to succeed, it's it's a it, it's really exciting when you get that culture right and. And I think part of that work, workforce there was to frame the things I really liked. It was very good at success uh, and how it, how it promoted um, success and winning in a culture. And, and that, that clearly stayed with me. So it, it, already at that stage, you sound like there's a competitive edge. Has that always been the case and, and the idea of winning culture? Yeah, yeah. I've, look, I've always been competitive too. I mean, even my kids will say now I change the rules and we're playing backyard cricket and so forth because I want to win too much, which is pretty poor really. But I, I just, just, it's just my chemistry. I've always been competitive. Always, I've always been, I guess, results-driven. I'm not really money-focused um, and I, I don't think that serves anyone well either, but I, I'm very much goal-driven. So, for example, even at CTM, you know, we've set three or four goals in, in terms of achievements and, and some metrics and um, and we're coming up with that last one soon hopefully so 
uh, yeah, just the way it's the way I'm made up again. Right, and let's go forward to 1994. Had you been planning that you'd like to go out on your own and start a business for a while? No, not really. I think I came to the tipping point. I was with the company and and I'd I lived away for a bit here and there and I think they wanted me to move away again and I, it was just a time to, to reconsider. And although it was a great experience living away as a young kid, um, I sort of miss my friends a bit. So it's sort of telling you a pathway about friends, isn't it, when I stop and think and reflect. But I, I just felt maybe I, I didn't want to move away and, and I was going to be back in an audit area, which I didn't really want to do. And then I think I just met someone and, and it all clicked and um, and then I thought, you know, I've seen an opening, I'm going to go and do this. So I, I work with another guy in a very small business, travel business, and I was, I, you know, I came in to grow that business and, and win clients. But through that process, everything I'd learnt, I could see what they were doing right and wrong. So essentially, uh, I think I contributed a lot to clean that business up and focus it on corporate and ended up buying it when it was very, very small and, and the rest is history. Um, but, you know, I, I remember taking that step and everyone telling me I was mad, you know, travel's competitive, um, there's no money in it, et cetera, et cetera. But I, for whatever reason at the time, I've, I felt I just, I've, I felt very focused that there was a gap and that, that um, I could do something differently and, and change uh, corporate travel in terms of how it was managed and serviced and so forth and, and took that step. Where did you get that money from to buy them out? It wasn't very much. I mean, I think it was $12,000 at the time. So, I mean, you know, it, it, it's interesting. And until very recently with COVID, I've, I've had a blessed, a blessed corporate life where I've never had to had debt or anything like that and, and, and things have always rolled our way um, for many, many years. Uh, and, and hence, you know, until very recently, I think we've grown in every single year of, of operation until obviously this year with, with COVID, which is quite incredible over 25 years. But just one of those things that it, it just worked that way. So, and I think... I've always been debt averse, um, and again, it's more probably the training I've had at, at my time at Arthur Anderson and, and even the family. You know, at the end of the day, even even I remember when I was a young kid, my grandfather used to say to me, "Listen, you know what? You can you can leverage yourself to the eyeballs, and you'll make a little bit more money than everyone else. But every time there's a crunch, it might be a ten or fifteen year cycle. Those with cash is how you really set yourself up generationally. And and I can't help but think of of that of that conversation when I was maybe ten years old. And how that's mapped out or played out, particularly in this COVID environment, what we've been doing recently. Very handy recently. Yeah, yeah. and uh, it's something that I was very, very close to my grandfather. Also, used to live across the road and used to tell me these stories, you know, crazy stories about business as well. He was an entrepreneur as well. Um, when I was so young, it was way too young to be talking about to a kid about business. I think I was eight, nine, ten, but that's what he used to do and tell me stories. So uh, it obviously resonated and, and stayed with me, but I do remember that one. Maybe it skipped a generation. Was he also very positive? Yeah, he was. He was a very positive man, very successful uh, entrepreneur in Brisbane. So I, I think all those things, you know, it, it is it, it's your environment, isn't it? It's part of what it is. I mean, you've got to have the drive yourself, but there's an environment there. And maybe I looked up to him or my parents or how hardworking they were and, and thought, well, maybe I want to be like that too. And why did you go out on your own? If you wanted to get into travel, Brisbane's one of the travel capitals of the world, and, of course, Flight Centre was there. Why wouldn't you go and get a job with them? Uh, I, I, I just think I, I saw a gap at the time. They were all leisure pretty much. And I, I, like I said, I met a guy who had a, had a very small a small business and and he, he you know, he talked me into what I could do. I, was, I think I got 40% of the business by coming into it and then eventually I bought the, the other 60% out pretty quickly when I saw the opportunity. So it was more that was the pathway through and then, you know, in, in the early days, it's like anything, you, you know, when you don't have a brand and uh, you don't have the buying power, you know, you've got to start looking at, you know, good business at good business process, which is, you know, what's your competitive advantage? At the time, it was good service and, and understanding needs and being, you know, tentative and uh, not tentative, sorry, but very proactive and so forth with customers. And and that was going to be the point of difference. And, and it sort of went from there. And when we were, had a really, I mean, I had, had, a, had a run. I mean, even listing, you know, people look at the listing and think, oh, you know, the, the stock's, you know, 20-fold or whatever it has since we listed 10 years ago. But we were seeing the same growth in terms of like-for-like like means from the 90s all the way through to listing as well. It, we just had this relentless uh, growth um, because, again, we just saw a big market and saw an opportunity to do something properly and and uh, and it, when it worked. And what was he doing wrong? You said you could, he couldn't get scale. He just wasn't a great salesman. He couldn't get the customers on board. I, I just think they were looking at how they're going to grow corporate. It was more of a leisure focus. It was an offshoot from media at the time, and uh, and and 
when I looked in the business, I got in there for a few months. I remember thinking, well, that's all, there's no money in that. Close that all down. We're going to focus on corporate. Uh, and, uh, you know, went and targeted a few customers and, and grew the business and went from there uh, and, and bought it out shortly after uh, and then and went on with it. And your first major customer, once you got settled in, was, if I'm right, a coal company? Yeah, you always look back very fondly um, at giving us a go. I mean, it was a, it was a, at the time, it was a large customer compared to our size. I remember it changed everything. I remember the very first phone call where they gave us a go, and um, it was it was very exciting. It was uh, I was I still get the thrill of winning a customer, and I hate losing customers. By the way, I still hate it, um, but the thrill of winning a good customer still floats my boat. But I certainly remember back then to win a, a large customer, particularly to give us a go, and and they were uh, at the time a a much larger customer than than we would have been worthy of. But again. Um, the, the company gave us a go and, and it was very successful. I think it was a starting point and a stepping stone to grow from there. So I'm, I'm always um, uh, look back at that very fondly and, and the opportunity they gave us. And I know you chase them hard, but what do you offer them given your lack of size and lack of experience? Surely they were sceptical. I think it was a service and expertise. You know, they were using one of these big global companies and call centres and we were saying, you know, they were very demanding, you know, premium class, uh, first class type of customer. They had to move and, and adjust quickly and they found it difficult and we said we could do that. Um, and it's still one of our key foundations today is that, you know, I, I truly believe in corporate travel. Technology is great but you need to match it with really good expertise and service because demanding travellers, um, you know, can – maybe have to travel the drop of a hat and we have to clear wait lists and get them in rooms and change things on the run and it, it's quite technical and that's the hardest part of travel but that's the most important part because, you, you know, failing a CEO or a C-level or, or a, a travel warrior can win or lose your business no matter how well you're doing with the rest of the, 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 uh, the, the customer. And did you struggle with that customer? Did you oversell and then have to backfill it a million miles an hour? Was it like that? No, no, we just – no, I think it's like we we, uh, we said what we could do and we just scrambled. We had a lot of late nights working working things through, but um, it was successful and it was a good stepping stone for us because that opened the door for for everything else that happened post. Um, and like I said, we, we had a more, an amazing run ever since we started Open the doors. We just had an amazing run of growth. And was it you doing all the selling and how many times did you have to make contact with them to get them over the line? Oh, a number of times, I think. But I think going back to the business, I started. I was a travel consultant. When it's small, I was doing everything. So I was actually frontline consulting. And that served me very, very well today because – because I had to do that, I, I have I have more of an understanding than the you know than the average I guess C level player of what goes on in the trenches and how important that is. Um, so I would I would say that I I I certainly accentuate the importance of the front line uh, in terms of what they what they mean for the brand because that's the customer that's what they see in terms of servicing, but also how we make things more automated and efficient for them to be to be the best they can be and 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 having. So, you know, growing up through a small business doing operations, sales, account management, and, of course, the finances for the company as well served me very well. So, you know, today, I mean, I, I, I couldn't do very well on the front on the front uh, floor anymore, but to have an understanding of how of all facets of the business has served me well, I think, in terms of leading the business. And you've mentioned risk. I've heard you talk about you lost a big customer at one stage. This is before you listed, and, and it knocked, knocked your revenue about and that you said you'd never wanted to be in that position again if you could help it. So no little debt, not, no customer concentration. You learnt that how and, 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 and why has it served you well? I think I've, one thing, I mean, for all, for all my inadequacies, I'm a, I'm a good learner and, and I try to learn, uh, I try to learn a, a bad, bad lesson once. And in, the, in that day, you know, losing a big customer, I think it was half of our business, taught me the lesson of diversity um, that serves very well today. In, in fact, we are incredibly – we're nearly obsessed about it. And, again, I, I, I can't stress how we've got through COVID because of some of those learnings. Um, you know, you don't want all your, you know, all your eggs in one basket or all your eggs in one geography or in one industry. Um, you know, and if I look at CTM today in, in COVID, I mean, we've got an incredibly diverse – client base geography geographical base a big focus on domestic travel you know we, we actually war game board is closing many years ago so we've got a lot of domestic travel for this sort of circumstance that we're in now that served us well as well as no client i don't think a client today is bigger than three or four percent of our business and we like that because 
you know, you, you, it's not going to make or break you in a year. You know, there's other there's other things to worry about. So that was a lesson I learned back then to lose that customer, um, and it stayed with me. And I, I know it's something that we preach, and it's it's well embedded in the culture here in terms of um, how we diversify everything that we can just to take away risk. Okay, let's go forward to 2010. You're getting ready to list your dream that you talked about when you were much younger. Um, why, why would you go public when you were making $3 million privately? Because it comes with conditions, doesn't it, with shareholders? Yeah, sure. I, I, I was never worried about that. And I, I think, like I said, barring a, a year, or, year or two here or there, um, I've, I've really relished the listed environment. I think it's been really good to us and hopefully we've been good to, to, the, to the environment as well. But when I look back at that day, I, I think it's important you list for a reason. And, and what we were finding again is that, you know, we'd buy small businesses, we try to expand around the country, you know, at four or five times multiples. But because we had no assets, because, of course, at a travel company, there's no assets, it's tables and chairs. So, you know, the banks at the time, without any, uh, you know, any, any asset guarantees, we'd want you to pay that back in four or five years. And, and then you get to the point, what's the point of this? Because you're, you're not really creating cash flow by doing that. Or um, So we, we felt that listing was the right thing to do because you had access to the market as opposed to debt. Um, and we'd get a better return on by doing that. And again, but we had we had a good plan too. I think at that time, it was really important. You know, we, we love in this business uh, road testing something before we do it. So we do a lot of beta testing. And, and some things we do, we never roll out. The public never hears about it. And you know that that's that's good. It's healthy. And sometimes we do things. Then we then the market or the business will essentially at the end see what that looks like. And one of those was we were road testing, you know, could we be a point of difference to the big guys, the big global, uh, you know, um, uh, competitors at the time had a call centre, all these sort of things. Could we do it on a scale of Brisbane? Could we make it work Sydney, Melbourne? You know, it's always that one thing to do a business in your own turf is easy to go and expand out of your home turf, then other countries is infinitely more difficult because you've got to be so good because there's things against you. So we want to prove a point, could we do that? And I think we proved that point, uh, that we could be a point of difference on not just Brisbane but a national scale. Uh, and then we we looked at New Zealand and that's when customers said to us, as we're getting bigger and bigger customers, said, look, what you're doing is quite unique. If you're in North America or Asia or Europe, we'd, we'd, there's nothing like what you offer it would be great if you could do it. So all those things sort of were the stepping stones to make us think, well, okay, um, we should consider that and and the rest is history. So we, we listed totally with the view not to cash out or any of that. It was really to get access to the market, to to raise capital, to um, to make to make strategic acquisitions in, in other markets as our, as our anchor point to grow from. And I think the market it served us exceptionally well, particularly those first, uh, you know, first number of years. Well, it definitely worked because I remember when I met you at the Morgan Stockbroking Conference on the Gold Coast. Yeah. And I think it was October 2010 and you were getting ready to float. It was a Friday morning and you given a presentation, but most of the um, attendees at the conference had gone home because it was a Friday. And um, we ended up sitting down to lunch together and you asked me if I was going to take any stock in the float. I said, I would be given it was only 10 times earning. And I remember clearly you whacked me on the leg under the table and said, you're going to make a lot of money, followed by a big grin. And I thought, we've got a live one here. He's up for it. <laughs> and it did. It was, up, it, was, it was a cracker. It was up 50%. So from day one, it, it, it was um, up and at him. Yeah, I, I think I think the good thing about listing is too, I mean, for, for anyone that's going to list, I think the best advice is you've got to list for the right reasons and you've got to have a long-range plan. You've got to have a growth You've got to have a growth model and how you're going to do that. And I think anyone that does that, they're always going to be successful uh, on the listing market because, you know, you, again, the market was good to us in the sense that you have access to capital, which today is, is just so amazing. I mean, I, I, I never try to take it for granted, but, you know, you look at other – peers that, that aren't listed at the moment and what they'd have to do to survive with debt and other things would be terrible, a difficult thing to go through. But I think secondly too, the good thing for me, a lot of my potential customers were the ASX 200. So it was a double it was a double bonus really. Um, it gave you credibility. So often a customer would never want to talk to you about travel, but other C-level people that you'd meet would love to talk about business uh, and that would get to travel. So it was very helpful in the, in the, in the early days actually in terms of um, – organic growth and winning customers. And in those days, you were filling in the holes in ANZ, but then you went offshore, Asia, Europe, the US. Did you ever get scared? You've mentioned that it's harder on someone else's turf. But was there any self-doubt or fear? No, it's, it's one thing. Call me crazy or call me stupid, I don't know. Fear is something that 
I've never really had. Um, I'm, a, I'm a thinker and I do a lot of planning, immense amount more planning than people would ever think, particularly after hours thinking things through to try to mitigate what those risks could be. But once I press a button, um, I'm usually, you know, it, it's well thought through and with a view to being successful. And clearly things go off the rails along the way, but I think the art is when it does, you've got a good collective group of people around you. Uh, and it's a good culture too when things don't go right to admit it and bring the right cycles and just work out how we can fix it. And I think that that's a cultural play as well that I think, again, served this business very, very well. So you've always said the magic ingredients of the business is the combination of good people, best service and the right technology, and, and that, that'll get you there. But how do you convince good people to stay with or come to work with you and stay with you? That's something that you never wanted to do personally. You wanted to go into your own business. So it's, it's difficult to reconcile that sometimes. Yeah, I think I think that's the good thing about being listed again. I mean, I think through the business we've made, it, you know, in the early days, we we're a millionaires factory. We we made I think now over a hundred millionaires in staff, and and I, I think what I was very conscious of was the good thing about being listed is you'd encourage people to have stock and options on stock so they could feel like they own the business and come along for the ride. But I think you know everyone's different. I mean, but. People that want to work here are here because it is a journey. It's a fluid business. They know there's change. It's always evolving uh, and you don't sit still. And people that like that really, really thrive in this in this environment. Um, sometimes people that are more steady as she goes can get churned out by the environment because we do move very fast. But to be fair too, as we've got larger and larger and it's much more of a corporate structure, you know, we've got, we've got experts in here that are, are more – are more attuned to the size of the business that are, are more, you know, uh, corporate careers that served us very well as well in, in, in areas that are non-travel, whether that be, you know, tech, data, finance, uh, HR, et cetera, et cetera. Um, we, we've got some great people in here that, that still want to be part of something that's growing but but um, understand how they can contribute. And that's the thing, I think. You know, I, I think alignment for staff, if you think to most people when they come to work, a real motivating factor is to understand when you go to a workplace, how do I contribute to the greater good, whatever that might be? Um, and that alignment is so critical. Uh, and if you can get if you can get a really simplified business model that everyone understands how they contribute to and, and KPIs and bonuses, whatever it might be, is also aligned to that, you tend to have a group moving as one. Uh, and, and when you get it right, it, it is really exciting because, you know, what, what what motivates me the most to this day is when great ideas come from someone else other than me and my executive team, off the floor or, or middle management, which means that the culture of being curious and, and innovation and feedback loops is working. That's what that's what motivates me the most in this business. And whilst that continues to happen, I'll be here forever. What about your energy? You talked about earlier that it was nice to stay home at Brisbane to be around your friends. You've been all over the world. And you never stop. Every time I see you, you get off a plane and you look as fresh as a daisy. Does your energy ever dry up? No, it, no, it doesn't. I mean, it doesn't. I usually find though on holidays, I, I tend to sleep for a day. Um, by the second or third day, I, I lose a whole day in catching up. But I, I'm, you know, it sounds like a, I just love what I do. It's it's a, it's fun. I like the people I work with. I like what we're trying to achieve. I mean, in the earlier days, we were more of a challenger brand. Like, you really, it's about sticking it to the competitors and, and trying to be something different. And, and maybe that's a chip on my shoulder. But I I, I enjoy doing that. But you know, I, I think one of the best things that we've got a really great team and and the bench strength and the, and the breadth of our team. I'd I'd match up to anyone else in our industry. And I think. It's got a great team, but they're the people who are taking the business forward. But I, I really enjoy what I do and I enjoy achieving goals. So I'm goal-driven, uh, goal and results-driven. So, you know, stock price or money doesn't really motivate me. Yeah, it's nice, of course, but um, it's it's getting – it's achieving goals. And, you know, the, the next goal for us was to have, you know, total sales or total transaction value per annum over $10 billion and always to make quarter of a billion, you know, in, in, in uh, profit, uh, you know, EBITDA and, and I think I'm sure it doesn't stop there though that's just a no no that's just the next goal and, and then we'll, we'll reset again but you know I mean obviously with COVID we're, we're miles from that but clearly we've got the structure and we've got the scale and we've got all the moving parts that that can happen I think when when activity recovers so I can I can smell that it's just a matter of um, what we can't control you know 
opening borders and controlling COVID and, and so forth. And uh, I think we're in a, we've put ourselves in an exceptionally good position um, through this because clearly our, our market share dynamics have changed materially. While everyone else is just trying to stay afloat, we've been working pretty hard on how we grow those, those dynamics and enhance our value proposition and make strategic acquisitions that will, can get us to that goal. That would have never happened, quite frankly, if not for COVID. Okay, let's talk about the last two years. From the outside, it hasn't been plain sailing, though. The last two seem to be the hardest. You, you've had, uh, you know, you've had a trifecta of issues. You've had the the shorters, the the VGI um, public attack on the company. You've had pretty um, negative journalism at different times, and then of course you've had the pandemic to deal with this year. Just quickly step through each event. I, I remember when the VGI. Uh, short report came out. I was a shareholder. I'd just seen you at a conference. I'd bought more shares. And I remember it was over a weekend. For some reason, I woke up in the middle of the night and was flicking through the newspapers. And here was this short report in the AFR. And I felt a bit sick because they just brought VGI just unpicked Slater and Gordon. And I was worried I'd missed something. Uh, if I felt sick, how were you feeling at the time? Because the stock was down 20 odd percent when it reopened after the weekend. Yeah, I, I think it's – I'll take it in two parts. I mean, firstly, um, I, I remember it well. I think it was a Sunday afternoon. I was at a barbecue, and, and when you get – when your phone rings and it's your crisis management leader uh, saying you've got to ring me urgently, it's not a, it's not a nice call. Um, so I remember that quite well. Having said that, look, you know, we, we had we had a blessed run, and I think I think we've – you know, we've had shorts before and we'll have shorts again. I think what made this one quite unique, it was uh, – it was – the, the media and the short wasn't mutually exclusive. They were working in tandem, uh, and it was it got it got very personal. But as I've said then and, and time and again, I've always taken the view that you've just got to do the numbers, uh, and at the end of the day, it's going to work out. And I think it, it clearly has. I mean, if I if I look in hindsight, you know, this particular. I mean, you know, I think good shorters, uh, good shorters do the work, uh, take a view, and if they get it wrong, they they you know, sort of move away quietly. Uh, I think in this circumstance, it got very, very personal because I think I think early on they they did get it wrong, and I think it was widely accepted that they did, and they knew that, and they got very personal, which I think, quite frankly, was a bit unprofessional, but it was all all part of the play. But you know, at the end of the day, we just sat as a team and said, we've just got to endure this and just keep doing what we're doing, uh, and I think I, I, the the irony is that um, COVID. COVID debunked anyone that even thought that what they could say could be true was debunked by COVID because it was things like cash flow and, and issues that, that clearly you can't you got nowhere to hide when you've got no revenue. And I think, um, you know, clearly it was very easy to prove that, that they were wrong and, and, and we move on in life. There was an important part of that, though, to the public. And I remember there was, um, as you said, it got very personal. But you decided to go to a broker presentation, which I was at, but the VGI were there in front of everyone. And you were, you took that meeting, and it was quite a tense atmosphere. There were, and VGI obviously had the idea of putting their case forward in front of a, a room full of investors. Why, why would you go to that meeting rather than take it behind closed doors? Oh, because I, I, I think we tried. I think we tried. I mean, you know, I've always been very. I'm always being upfront. If, we, if there's a problem, I'm happy to talk and, and manage conflict. That's just my makeup. And I think in this particular circumstance, they just had a they had an agenda, a manipulating agenda, and. They didn't want to talk. They didn't want to talk privately, so it was a chance to talk. You know, you do that. But again, we had nothing to hide, so we were just trying to just go along with our with with what we had in the business um, because we knew we were right um, and and go along with it. And I think you know, um, oh, nothing much more to say other than that. That I, I want to confront things, and I think it's just the way I am. Um, having said that, uh, you know. Like I said, I'm a good learner, so there was good things to learn from that as well. Um, if I look back in hindsight, it's made us think and plan a hell of a lot more than I think our peers would at the same size, uh, and that's been really helpful. Um, so, you know, I've taken a lot out of that as well. I think I think we think even more and, and long range more than even we did before that, which I think is great for the business. Um, and at the end of the day, you know, I think it's really clear that they got it wrong. And and interestingly, VGI's Doug Tynan's retired now. He's left the business. You're still powering ahead. But was there any personal scars? I mean, it, it was pretty public. 
Oh, look, I'm tough, and I think I think that's why I think they took it so personal. I mean, I mean, I think in hindsight, is they knew they got it wrong. I mean, I remember the first thing we did, we, we got a forensic accountant in and said, look, go through this. Is there anything that we're doing wrong? And in 30 seconds, I remember him saying loud and clear, a high-profile guy said, these guys are manipulating. They're, they know exactly what you what you, you find. They're just trying to make a cause to make money. And I think at that point, I felt pretty relieved, uh, you know, and then we just moved on. But I, I think... Um, uh, it did get personal, and I think the hard. I mean, I, I'm tough. I, I, it doesn't bother me, but it's more about I think the fact that it had to is pretty unprofessional. Particularly, forget me, but it's, it's the people around me. It was hard for some of the people around me because I think the the strategy was to try to damage and criticise anyone that was either in the company or supported the company with a view to you know a self self fulfilling prophecies when they leave or something, and then then it, it forces the company to 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 actually not execute. I think so. When I look back in hindsight, um, you know, the, the interesting thing is is that um, I, I, I personally think and I think the wider investment community would say the same thing is it probably damaged their credibility and reputation for, for Robin and his company and I think the fallout uh, says much about possibly the conflict internally on the position they took because um, it was it's pretty public and it, was a, it wasn't a big position either but you'd think it was. So... You wonder if they took their eye off the ball, and I, you know, looking at their stock price today, you know, the VJ, you know, it's it's way under half what it was. So, obviously, something's not quite right over there. And you just get over that, and then COVID nineteen hits. It, it the travel industry hits a wall. I listened to a conference call. I would say in March, maybe early April, with you on it. Your business has obviously been tremendously impacted in the negative sense with virtually no one on a plane, no one going anywhere. You were as cool as a cucumber. You outlined how much liquidity you had, how you saw playing it, how you had to cut costs. Was that a bit of a front or had you reconciled it in your own mind and worked through it and the cool kind of voice on the other end of the line? Because I remember getting off and talking to my colleague and saying, I can't believe how confident and relaxed Jamie was on that call. Yeah, I look back. I think I think also, you know, that 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 personal shorting thing was really helpful because nothing phases me anymore. And and let me make it clear that 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 the uh, the COVID thing it was it was by far the most difficult thing I've ever had to face, be it personally or professionally. But but I mean everything else passes in comparison because you know it's one thing to run a business, but to have zero revenue just like that at the, at the flick of a finger is it, it is it, it is a an it's nearly an impossible. Uh, you know, outcome that you can never plan for. But having said that, I, I think great people and great leaders, you, you see what you're made of in adversity. And, and again, like I said, I, I'm a, I, I, sort of, I sort of thrive in that environment. I remember being pretty pumped up. But at the same time, it was very, very terrible because we sat down as a team and we, we, knew, we knew in the first week of March we were going to be fine. But we also thought to survive this and do it properly, we're going to have to make some deep cups quickly. And, and if this is only going to be short term, we really got it wrong. I'll never forget the conversation. Um, you know, we were, and I think in hindsight, we moved very, very swiftly compared to anyone else um, and deeply early, and, and that's been our saving grace. But at the time, it was a very, very difficult decision because, yeah, if, if it was only a short-term thing or it didn't really expand too far beyond Asia and so forth, we were going to make a, big, a very bad decision. I was going to say, it seemed like a, you moved at lightning speed, but you've always valued people. You keep mentioning it, they're incredibly important to the business. But you had to turn around and, and lose, I think, up to a third of your workforce. Yeah, even more. It, it, was, it was the most difficult thing I've had to face. I mean, you have very loyal people that have been good to the business, that have been, that quite frankly have contributed so much to the fabric, the culture, the success, the growth of the business, and having to tell them, um, you know, that this is what we had to do uh, was, 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 was terribly gutting with, with people that have spent, you know, half of their lives in the business. It was, it was the most difficult thing, not just for me, for many, many of our people and our leaders. And um, it, was a, it was a difficult thing. But the interesting thing through all of it, you know, nearly without exception, people were apologising to us saying that we understand why and, you know, and uh, there's some, some really sad stories of people saying, look, take me instead because, you know. Wow. So, so it, was, it, it just says much about our culture. But, yeah, it, was, it wasn't a very nice thing to do because, you know, obviously in, in a business, when people don't perform, it's a, it's a whole different conversation. But when people are doing nothing wrong and it's an environment um, that you can't control, it was, yeah, it was, it was difficult for, for many of our people. But, again, I'm, I'm so proud of our team in terms of, you know, how we've come out the other side of this Um if I, if I take it in two parts, it's all the things we've learnt, you know, about our diversity, about technology, um, 
so so many factors about having essential travel clients because we've got to take away risk of you know bread and butter customers there's many things we planned for over the years that all came together in early march i'll never forget there's six or seven facets that if we didn't have all seven we'd be in a different position you know even from the point of view we had a contingency line of credit would you believe uh, and it was one of the things that came out of this the shorting that we thought about everything that could ever pull us apart um, and we had this thing that we had it we just pulled out of a drawer and, and blew off the dust that if we didn't have as well as it turned out we never needed that that line of credit but um, these are all the good things that are that it's highly unlikely a company would ever have in this environment that got us through so what that means now is that we knew really early in March we were going to be fine the market didn't but we did and as all those around us were going to the you know the market and raising funds or debt or so forth we felt very very comfortable because we knew we had more revenue than others because of our client base. We knew our, our variable cost base was much, much higher, which means we could flex a lot better. And we knew we had most of our own technology, but we didn't have other costs that people had to bear. You know, the, these, these sort of tech contracts, they're huge minimum layouts if you're not doing the transactions. We don't have any of that. So we had all these advantages, and then we had a huge domestic base and that was diversified across the world. So we knew early, and then I, I remember after we set up a, a, you know, a framework to manage that, um, we, we moved on the front foot very early. So then we thought about, okay, what's the opportunity here and what can we do? And, you know, I, I think so we've been over a couple of acquisitions through the cycle, uh, one in particular, the big one in, in the States, you know, travel and transport. Well, you, didn't you get – you got on a plane and flew over there into, into COVID central and stayed over there and, and got the – the transaction done, incredible. Yeah, yeah. My, my chairman at the time thought we were mad, and and uh, the CIO came over as well. And on on the basis that we we felt very strongly, there's no way in the world we're going to do an acquisition without eyeballing the management team. Uh, and it was the best thing we did because you know we were over there for a week, and not only did we get to meet you know thirty or forty people, which is very important to us. As we've always said, it's it's the breadth of a management team is what we're really buying, and their ability to you know to to manage people and customers. That's really what we're looking at. And we saw that management team in action, but we used this time too to actually agree before we even owned it on on what the strategy is going to look like, which is quite – it'll probably never happen again with an acquisition, but we agreed to that, you know, three or four weeks before we even uh, made the made the uh, the transaction. And and uh, I, I don't know how we would have done that without travelling. And these are the hazards of COVID, you know. I mean, for all, our, for all our customers as well, you know, you need to travel to grow business, manage a business, supply chains and, and, and do acquisitions. So, it, again – couldn't have done it without it and and again we had to you know we had to put our own um risk framework in there what would happen if you know we caught we caught COVID over there or worse still we got hospitalized what was that going to look like no insurance but we, we managed all of that um and i think but again you know it's 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 having a risk appetite and fortune favors the brave and hopefully in hindsight with a vaccine looks like it's it's it really is imminent things are things are looking up do you, but the, the events of the last two years do you think in the share market's eyes, in the investors' eyes, there's been a bit of a de-rating that you'll never recapture given what can go wrong with a travel business? Oh, I, I don't really get too concerned about that. I, I, I think my view on the share market is sometimes it overshoots, undershoots, get things right and wrong, but there's two or three times a year it gets it right, and it's usually your half year, your full year, and maybe your, your AGM. And Our whole business is just focused on executing. And if I look at our business strategically, you know, we're – we're, I think now we're the fifth biggest player in the world, but we're in a hugely fragmented market. We're not even represent one percent of that of the of the world's corporate travel. We know that our value prop sound, and if we keep enhancing that value prop, there's there's no way we can't outperform the market and continue to grow. And I mean, these days, from an investment point of view, to have a company that has you know doesn't require debt to grow, it grows at double digits with free cash flow, and it's a global business. I mean, they're they're, they're rare things to find that actually make money. I'm not talking about tech companies that, you know, it's just on revenue multiples that, that often don't make money or never will make money. So we're trying to create what we think is a one in a hundred asset. Um, and I think now uh, that's clearly the focus. So I don't really worry about that. It, it'll sort itself out. All right, okay, let's go out with a bang. You've given us the 10 billion TTV target, which doesn't seem too far away given your latest transaction. You're sitting up around that eight. Can we go forward the 10 years? You've been listed 10 years? Let's go forward 10 years. You sit fifth or sixth in the world in terms of corporate travel, if I'm correct. What, is, what does corporate travel look like in 10 years? You've gone from 350 to, say, 8 billion. We'll give you that number for the moment. What does it look like? 
I, it, it's, it should be much bigger. Uh, but also I, I, I think what, what we're trying to achieve is to be the very best in what we do. And I know it sounds, it sounds silly, but the real goal is that every city we operate out of, the, the, uh, the litmus test for me of success is that in every city we operate of, our competitors go, when we're in a tender, go, oh, no, CTM's in that tender. You know, and that, that's probably the, the – if we're doing that, that means our value prop's right, our model's right, our market share's right, everything that we need to worry about is right. And and in some cities and some countries, we're probably even there already, but to do that across the whole globe consistently is what I think is a truly world-class company. I think anyone can grow in their own market, but to be able to be a leader in other markets, that's the test of a true great global company and that's what we aspire to be and, 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 and that's where we've got to go. Can you be number one in size? Oh, I, I don't. I don't know. I think it's bigger than that. I think the biggest ones, you know, fifty billion or so um, US dollars. Actually, I mean, it's not really about size. It's just about about being able to grow and get a return and just be the best at what we can be. And I, like I said, that's that's not our goal to be the biggest. But as I keep saying, it's a it's a one point five trillion US dollar market that's so fragmented with you know the biggest player maybe being two percent of that, maybe three percent at best. So it, there's there's so much there's so much you know activity to take, and I think. The good thing about things like COVID, when you're nimble uh, and you're curious and you're customer facing, you really are, and you know you're building your own tech and listening to customers' ideas. There's going to be a lot of uh, transformation through COVID, uh, not just in our, not just in other industries, but certainly in travel in terms of how distribution. There's so many things going on here at the moment, and and the needs of customers have changed radically in terms of safety's become important and so forth. And I think. We're holding all the right cards. When we have our own, you know, technology that we can control and build, we, we seem to be handing, you know, hanging on all the right, the right levers and cards to be successful. And I think, you know, again, like when I go back all the way to my grandfather, you know, I'm thinking about now is we've got that one in ten or fifteen year generational opportunity, and we're so determined to 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 materially improve. Uh, the business performance and, the, and our outcomes through this cycle, and I think the acquisition is just part of it. But coming out of it, we, you know, this is this is a chance for us to really make large inroads into into the market compared to our peers, and that's what we we're, we're determined to do. And Jamie, I know you're a glass half full guy, but is there any downside, personal downside to to building a company like you have, and the ambitions you've got? Is it hard on the family? Is it hard on your health? What have you had to give up to be so focused? Oh, I think sometimes friends. I think I, you know, sometimes I don't see my friends as much as I used to be. Particularly when I travel, I, you know, at the moment I'm not, but I, I do travel a lot. Being, you know, most of our business is, is 85 percent or so is offshore now. So um, I, I think my wife would tell you I've got a good balance, and I'm really, I'm really conscious of not working at home. Um, and I, I work really hard at that. And also work hard at fitness because you've got to, to keep the energy going. You've got to be fit. So typically my my routines are much better when I'm when I'm offshore than onshore. But outside of that, I mean, I think like anything, if you enjoy what you do, that's nine-tenths of the problem in life. Um, and, and and lucky for me, I do. And I, I've said to my team all the time, if I'm not having fun and not adding value, if I'm not doing both, for God's sakes, tap me on the shoulder and put me out to pasture. Well, it sounds like you're having a lot of fun. Thanks for that. It was great chatting to you and really appreciate the time. Terrific story. And I look forward to catching up maybe in 10 years when you go past that 50 billion US. Thanks again, Matthew. All the best. All the Thanks best. Bye-bye. It's tough at the top, but some people just love climbing the mountain and trying to stay there for as long as possible. Even for me, a person who has known the guest for many years, I still haven't quite worked out why they've been able to pull off the remarkable. Each time I talk to them, though, I learn a little more, and today was no exception. If you like today's episode, subscribe through Apple or Spotify, or if you're a live wire reader, give this wire a like.